all the things that are going on are driving us closer and closer to that moment in time. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verse 18, and then I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and you'll see all of these verses tied together. I'm going to give you homework. Go home, read all these texts, see how they intertwine. Just for time's sake, it's going to be a little bit easier if we do it this way. Verse 18, little children, it is the last time. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have risen up from which we know that it is the last hour. So chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he shall be revealed, this is talking about his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself, even as that one is pure. Pray with me. Father, as we enter into a time in your word, Lord, I pray you'd prepare our hearts. I know that as we'll see this morning, the early church lived with anticipation that at any moment you could come. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would do the same in our hearts, that you'd reveal to us that there's coming a time, and I believe very soon, that the rapture of the church is going to take place and it's going to usher in a seven-year period unlike the world has ever seen. And Lord, I pray that we're ready. I pray that our hearts, our focus is upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we begin this morning, this two-part series, I want to give you guys a bit of context. John's writing to a church that had already 2,000 years ago begun to feel the effects of a false gospel. Can you imagine? They're just past Jesus' death and resurrection, and already the enemy of our souls begins to infiltrate not just the world, but the church doctrine and what it was to be saved, what it was to abide in Christ. John, by this time, he's an old man. He's definitely in his 90s, in a time where the average lifespan was about 45 years old. So he's already doubled the average lifespan. And most likely, this is the last of his writings. Many believe the gospel and the book of Revelation had already been written long before. So he is now no longer in exile. He's probably in Ephesus as an elder over the church, and he is now writing these things that are important to him. He's the last of the apostles, and in that way, he's alone on the horizontal, in, in the human sense. All of the other disciples, long gone. Peter had been beheaded already 20 years before. Matthew skinned alive for his faith. Thomas impaled in India, and 
all of the others, even some of the second generation saints who had never really even seen Jesus by this time, had begun to be martyred. They were drugged behind chariots and crucified and beheaded and thrown from pinnacles. They were beat to death and tortured immeasurably. It wasn't a joke to be a Christian. It wasn't cute. It wasn't a cliche. You either were or you weren't. John is the last eyewitness of Jesus Christ. In fact, he writes that at the very beginning of this. He says, that which we, speaking of the disciples, we have seen. He goes, we've heard with our ears. And his voice is still ringing, the text says. In his, they set their gaze upon him, he says. And they touched him. And he goes, this is the Jesus that I want to tell you about. The last of the disciples, some would say in a way, all the others martyred. He was sentenced to a martyrdom of long life. Paul deals with that when he talks about, hey, I would rather be home with the Lord. But for your sake, I'm here. I'm sure John was struggling with that very thought into his 90s. Now an elder of Ephesus, Ephesus, no longer in exile, he begins to write what I believe is, in a way, his last will and testament. And in this letter, he tells them some important things. And I love when people don't leave it up to conjecture as to why he writes it. He goes, I want to tell you why I was writing these things. He starts in the first verse, or in the first chapter, in the fourth verse, by saying, I've written these things that your joy might be full. He's telling them that there's a delight that's complete and ultimately satisfying. No need for the things of the world. The joy doesn't come from the outside and the pleasures of the world. In fact, he's going to deal with that. He's going to comes from within in a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He deals with the assurance of salvation, not a mystery, but a mark of the believer. As he says, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. You guys, it was just a few weeks ago. Many of you don't know, but my cousin Freddie went to be with the Lord this last week. And he was here just literally uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Mike brought him up on the teleprompter and he began to go through and he began to thank all of the people that had ministered to him. He didn't grow up a Christian. He grew up in a Catholic church and, and his life would have it. It landed him in some pretty rough places. And when he got out, he landed in this church and many of you spoke into his life. And so he began to, to thank each and every one of you as he could remember. In fact, I, I can recall Pastor Mike, at least second service was going, okay, Freddie, it's time to quit because he wanted to go through and just name everybody. And Freddie said one last thing and it just it resonated in my heart because from the time that I talked to him and he told me that 
He had just days to live. John was there. John witnessed this thing. There was an assurance of his salvation. There was a joy, guys, that is unbelievable. He just simply said, Pastor, can I say one more thing? He says, sure, Freddie. He said, guys, I can't wait to see you in heaven. See, he had this incredible assurance of his salvation. And John is writing that we can know that kind of peace, that kind of joy in the midst of something like that. As I said, the seduction of the believer, the false gospel had already begun to infiltrate the church. And so he says, I've written to you concerning them that seduce you. He goes, I'm calling them out. I want you to know that there's a false gospel as well, that there's false teachers. And in a world that we live in today, we see it so often. A world that is teaching about the me, myself and I, and a church that's doing the same. And then he writes to them about sin. And oftentimes in churches today, we don't deal with this subject. It's too personal. It's too difficult. But he deals with it not just as a concept, but as a contrast between a sinful world and those who embrace those things that are in the world and a believer who is abiding in Christ. And he says, I've written these things that you wouldn't sin. He deals with, hey, if you have sinned, there's a way back. There's a way to, to confess those sins. But he's talking about a continual, habitual type of a lifestyle. And so he's dealing with that kind of sin, that we would sin not. And he goes on to point out all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are not of the Father, but are of the world. And so he contrasts those two things. Where are you at? So why do you think these things were important for John as he's writing these things? It's about 100 AD, somewhere 95 to 100 AD, when he's writing these words. I believe it's because of what we just read in verse 18. That he believed with all of his heart, with all of his mind, that we were living in the last times. And in this context, he says in the emphatic, you guys, he's not, this isn't a question. He's not him hawing around going, maybe it could be the last time. I don't know. What do you guys think? It's a, a statement, an emphatic statement, a strong statement that it is the last hour. And in fact, that's what he does because he, he couches this thought of it being the last times in the Antichrist, in the spirit of Antichrist. He couches that between those two phrases. He starts it out. It is the last time. And then he reiterates it at the end of the verse. And he says, it's in, and in the Greek, it says the last hour. Some of your translations might read that. It's even the last hour. He's taking it a step further. He's going beyond the last times in just some general sense. He's saying any minute 
the King of glory might return. And so it begs the question that we saw in the video clip of you and I. Are we ready? Now, this is interesting to me because most likely John's already written the book of Revelation. I believe he has. When I study it and I look at the times and the things that were there, I believe he's already written the book of Revelation. And anyone who has read the book of Revelation, you've seen that he's seen the end times up close and personal. He had a perfect view of it. He's seeing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it was a physical taking him in those places or whether it was in his mind eye, we don't know exactly, but somehow he saw the last times, which means he saw times like today, 2,000 years later. He sees what's going on. And with great detail, he writes about those things from chapter 6 all the way through 19, he describes the period before the millennial reign, this seven-year period of tribulation. We call uh, literally hell on earth, a time that has never been before, nor ever will be. And so in a way, when John says it's the last time, for him, it certainly was in his 90s, outlived all of his contemporaries. But he's not looking at it from that vantage point. He's believing that, hey, at any minute, the Lord could show up. And it's in this context that he says, there's something, I know what I saw in the revelation. I know those end times that I saw, but there's something in the context of the now, his time, that was significant enough to go, it's already the last time, even in light of the vis vision that he had received on Patmos, he believed that Jesus might return at any moment. And that can take us one or two ways, guys. We can look at something like that and we go, if he thought it 2,000 years ago, what makes us think today is any different? And, and some today would do that. Some today would say, well, it's 2,000 years later. How can we really know what the last time is. And Peter deals with that very thought. Some 30 years before this time, before John is pinning these words, Peter deals with that. He says, there's people who are coming and even in his time, they're saying, where's the promise? This is years, not hundreds of years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The church was looking for his imminent return. And he goes, where is it? And he goes, the Lord's not slow concerning his promises. Not as, as some would even count slowness. And, and he accounts for that. He says, hey, some are going to say exactly that. And he's going, but he's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he's going, don't take it for granted. He's coming. Peter believed it. No doubt John, as he's 
putting his pen to the quill. And, and guys, you have to study this stuff for yourself. I've studied this. I've went through it. As I read these things, I believe with all of my heart that John is looking backwards. Remember, he hung on every single word that Jesus would write. What was his reference? We look at the gospels, we look at the epistles, we go and we quote John and we quote Peter and we quote Paul. Guess who John was quoting? He's quoting Jesus. And so I believe with all of my heart, as he's putting his pen to the quill, he's remembering the Olivet Discourse. And we'll, we'll take a look at that in just a minute. But remember, Jesus tells the disciples as they would beg the question about his second coming and of the end of the age. And so I believe it's with this in mind that John's saying, hey, it's the last times, even the last hour. And if John could say it 2,000 years ago, how much more can we say it today? Because what a time we live in. Israel, this little country, it's no bigger than Kern County, surrounded on all sides by an enemy. To the north of the Lebanese, to the east of the Syrians, and to the south are the Egyptians. There's no room for them. They're surrounded on every side. We're witnessing a vehement for the Jewish people like we've not seen since World War II. And I wasn't alive in World War II, but I've read books. This is something beyond just people not liking somebody or wanting freedom. All across our country, and it's a shame right now, I can't even believe it's taking place, but not only our country, but the world right now on universities all across the country. People are not only chanting death to Israel. I heard a group of college students, I, I watched it with my own eyes, and it's hard to even believe, saying, gas the Jews. We're living in the last moments. There's no prophecies that need to be filled or fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Jesus can come at any moment, and it begs the question for you and me, are we ready? I believe that Jesus always wanted the church, even 2,000 years ago, to believe with that sense of expectation that he could return at any moment. The early church fathers believed it. And in their writings, Polycarp and all of these guys that would write, they would write of the end times that any moment Jesus could show up. The New Testament authors, guys, they believed it. We, we see it here in John. Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says that he prays for them so that they would come behind or wouldn't be lacking in any gift. And then he says, waiting 
And, and the Greek is with anticipation. See, not just like waiting, walking around. It's this deep desire, deep anticipation for the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That was the posture of the early church. Are we waiting with anticipation for his return? The early church lived with that kind of anticipation. I gave my life to the Lord, as I said, in 70s. It was 1976. I had got married, turned 18, and a few months later, gave my life to the Lord. It was that quick. It was just literally months in, in the order of things. I, I was so blessed to see the Jesus revolution. Many of you have seen the movie. Greg Laurie was my pastor. He would come into my high school. It's how I started hearing the gospel. And I've had conversations with people about what was it like? What marked that time for you? What was the mark of the last times for you. And I think about it sometimes, and I've heard people talk about the music, you know, the Maranatha, the things that took place. And it was a wonderful day. There was all of a sudden this contemporary Christian music entered the scene. And for me, as a, a person involved with worship, I love that. And I'm a recipient of that, of that moment in time that took place. And all of a sudden, music became a little bit different than it was before but I don't believe it had anything to do with that. That was just one of the things that God did in there. What for me marked that time was all of us lived with a sense of anticipation that at any moment he could return. There was teachings going out all over the place. Just a few years before, 20 some years before, Israel had become a nation fulfilling really the last major prophecy that needed to take place before Jesus could show up from nothing. You guys from nothing, <laughs> there was no nation for nearly 2000 years. They were pe a people were spread out and yet they maintained their heritage, their belief system, and they all come back and into the land. But it was with that sense of anticipation that the Jesus movement went forward because it makes you heavenly minded. It takes your eyes off of the here and now, off of the things that are in front of you. And it makes you look with anticipation that any moment he could come in. Paul says to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we are, and he uses the word looking, the Greek, expectantly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you heavenly minded today? We had a sense that God wanted to change. As you saw a bunch of hippies that were walking around, and it wasn't a change on the outward. It wasn't our clothes. It wasn't how we look. Today, I'm very proud, by the way, John on Wednesday wore a t-shirt and he was so proud that he taught with a t-shirt on Wednesday. I want you to know I'm proud. I have a collared shirt, John, just so you know. But it wasn't about what we wore. 
it was we wanted to be right before the Lord. And I can remember as a young Christian, Lord, purify me. Make me right before you. Paul goes on in, in, in that same epistle to the church at Philippi, and he says, let your moderation, let your appropriateness, let your benevolence, your kindness, those things that reflect the character of Christ be known to all men. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. What does the world see today when it looks at you and me? What do they see? Do they see Jesus? Do they see his loving kindness? Do they see his heart? Do they see a people who are given over to sharing the gospel in a dark world? Or do we look like the world? See, that's what John was saying when he said all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It becomes about us. We don't become heavenly minded. We become egocentric. Are we living a life of what we can get away with? Coming up against the edges, it, uh, continually speaking, hey, here's the line. How close can I get to the line without crossing over? Are we seeking his will for my life? It changed our prayer life. I can remember praying constantly for my parents, for my sisters who didn't know the Lord at that time. Later, they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus, but they didn't at that time. I can remember praying for them, for coworkers and the people that I worked with. How about our study of God's word? You guys, I'm telling you, I grew more in my faith in the first year that I was saved than at any other point in time, it was exponential. I just was devouring everything I could read. And I'm not a reader. I have two engineering degrees and I hate reading. That sounds counter, but I don't. I'm not that guy. I love studying. I love studying the Bible. I don't like just reading for reading's sake. And God took this young man, 18 years old, and he just started giving me a heart for his word. But see, we can be so steeped in the mire of sin and compromise. All these things begin to get set to the side. These things were, I believe, marks not only of that Jesus revolution of the time that God did this incredible work in the life of young people all over, not just America, but the world, but they're marks of people who are ready. Are we ready? Are we waiting with anticipation? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. As John's putting his pen to the quill, if he's remembering the Olivet Discourse, and I believe he is, this is the portion of scripture he's remembering. And if it is, then I think we need to look 
closely at what Jesus was telling his disciples and tells you and I today. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone on another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? He's speaking now. They're, they're talking about the temple. And so there's, tell us, when are these things going to be? When's the temple going to be demolished? And what then shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? You guys, at this point in time in Matthew, and we're going to cover this a little bit more next week, but at this point in time, this is one day removed from what we term Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where he comes off the Mount of Olives and he descends the hill, crosses over the Kidron Valley, goes through the East Gate. Luke tells us in his gospel that as they departed and the disciples that are now making this question, it's only Andrew, Peter, James, and John that are actually hearing uh, this discussion. You remember he came in, he goes into the temple. He turns over the money changers' tables and he tells them, you've turned my father's house into a, thin of, a den of thieves. He begins to chide and chastise those and begin to make preparation. He knows he's got hours, days to live. The blind, as they would in every city that he showed up, and the lame. If you were blind and lame and you heard that Jesus is doing these incredible miracles, where would you go? You'd be seeking him out, and they were. And so they begin to come in to the temple just to catch a glimpse in hopes that like the woman with the issue of blood, they could just touch his garment or that he would speak a word to them and they would be healed. And of course, what happens when a work of God begins to take place? Religious leaders who are continually looking for ways to keep their power and authority, they begin to come in. And they start trying to trap him by that very thing, questioning his power and authority. And so Jesus begins an exhaustive sermon. He deals with, really from Matthew 21 until this point in time, he deals with uh, matters of the heart, the, the call of God for us to come to him and what that looks like. Is it religion or relationship? Jesus begins to deal with these things. And so after all of this, Jesus leaves the temple and he begins to move toward the Mount of Olives and he lands there and his disciples, those few, as he's leaving and exiting the temple, they turn around and they look at this incredible temple. And they go, 
man, this is awesome. Jesus, are you seeing this? Do you see the temple? Mark's gospel tells us that they were particularly amazed with the stones. Now, I, I got a friend here from church, gave me a book on the writings of Josephus. It's this thick. I'll never read it from cover to cover, but I am so appreciative he gave it to me. I'm starting to look at Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. As he gets captured, he changes his names to Flavius Josephus to appease the Roman captors. But Josephus says of these temple stones, and he writes of these temple stones, that there were several stones, many stones that were 45 cubits in length five in height, six in breadth. So for me and you, we don't know what a cubit is. That's 70 feet long. Imagine one piece of stone. This building across is probably 60 feet. Imagine a stone that is more than 70 feet long, more than 10 feet high and eight feet wide. And some of these stones weighed over 750 tons. A, a good-sized car weighs three or 4,000 pounds. 750 tons. How did they move these things? One piece of stone. These weren't, we're not talking about stones that are put together. One cut, one slab. They still today cannot figure out how they get this to these mountain tops. It's an incredible feat of engineering. Many of these stones were painted with gold and variegated colors in such a way that Josephus says that from a distance, these things, they would sparkle, that it would be hard to even look at the temple at certain points in the day as the sun would reflect against all of this gold and colors majesty that they'd put together. Quite a sight. Now, guys, I don't know about you. For me, these are things that my mind just works this way. I'm crazy. But I see stuff like this in the Bible. I do not believe that there's anything that's in the Word of God that's just random. These guys weren't just sitting there eating a hamburger and going, hey, I'm writing of Jesus. And by the way, I'm eating a hamburger right now. They didn't just throw stuff in there for fluff. The Holy Spirit brought this to their hearts. Painstakingly, they would write these things. So I think there's something here that's important about the fact that they looked back. It didn't just say Jesus then started teaching on the temple. Hey, look at the temple. It says that they brought his attention to it. They were in awe and in wonder of what they were looking at and what they were seeing. I believe. Now, keep in mind, before I tell you what I believe, they had just come off an incredible sermon. They had ringside seat to watch the Pharisees get their lunch money taken from them. They were up close and personal to all the things that had just taken place. They were seeing healings right before their very eyes again. And Jesus, in a powerful way, he's making a distinction between religion and relationship, and he's drawing all these incredible pictures. Wouldn't you think 
that they would leave that place and they would walk out and they'd go, hey, that was an incredible sermon. Tell us about this. It was awesome when you healed. No, they were looking back at the building, at the gloss, the shiny objects. And I believe that it's the disciples' preoccupation with these stones and where their focus was that Jesus begins to tell them, do you see these stones? It's in direct relationship to that. He says, there's coming a day when there won't be one of these stones left standing on another. You're preoccupied with this. You've just heard manna come down from heaven. And I want to tell you, those stones aren't lasting. And Jesus is telling them in a way, the things are temporal. And even the things that you think will last forever, a stone so massive you can't even comprehend it, in just a few short years, 70 AD, 30 some years later, Titus Vespasian would stand over where the temple was and not one stone would be left standing upon another. See, when John was writing there in 1 John chapter 2, talking about the last times, I believe he was remembering this discussion. And he's saying to the church, don't look at the shiny objects. Set your affections above. Are you ready? And we hear Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple, and we can think, hey, stones were just rolled away. And... But if we don't understand the point that he was making, if we don't understand what took place, then we'll miss what Jesus was prophesying. Josephus goes on to describe what was taking place and how just this 30-something years later, this temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left standing on another. In 67 AD, the Jewish rebellion begins. And Nero, wanting to stop this thing, he sends Vespasian. He's this Roman general to siege Jerusalem and to stop the rebellion. One year later, Nero commits suicide. He's already beheaded Peter. He now is crazier than a loon. He kills himself. And so he sends Vespasian to put out this insurrection. Now, it wasn't but a year later when Caesar uh, Nero kills himself that all heck breaks loose. And literally in a period of a year, they go through four emperors. We see what's taking place right now in our elections and trying to pick out a house speaker. In that case, one just steps aside and goes, okay, it wasn't me. Next. In this case, you step up as Caesar. Hey, you get killed. If you aren't the guy, you get killed. So Vespasian heads back, takes his armies with him. He heads back and 
he takes Rome by force and becomes the emperor. And he will be the emperor until he dies about 12, 13 years later. So he wanted his sons to succeed him. So he sends his son Titus to finish the job that Nero had sent him to do. Quelch the rebellion. And they again begin to siege Jerusalem. Now for Jerusalem, by this time, the battle had become torturous. You guys imagine if you've been to Jerusalem, it's not all that big of a, a place. They're in these walls and they're now in there for a long period of time. They don't have the ability to go out and to get food and all of those things. They're surrounded on all sides. And so Josephus tells us that starvation had set in and that it even had led to cannibalism. So here in the, the temple, starvation had driven them to things that are unthinkable. People are throwing themselves now off of this temple walls. It was so horrific that Josephus says of Vespasian that he's walking the perimeter and he says, God, if you're there, don't lay this to my account. I didn't want any of this. 1.1 million people were dead when Vespasian would come in and those stones would be laid to the side. I think it's with this in mind that Jesus tells his disciples not only of the destruction of the temple, but of his coming and of the end of the age. John, the last of the eyewitnesses, guess what he would get to see? That very act. The rest of them didn't. They didn't see it. They heard it. 66 AD, the rebellion starts. But he saw it. He knew that every word that Jesus had spoken there had come to pass. And he would remember as Jesus would speak of wars and rumors of wars. And he would say to them, to John, as it were, because John would remember this, see that you're not troubled for all these things must occur, but the end is not yet. That's what he tells them just a few verses later in verse six. The end is not yet. He's reminding them, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. There's going to be wars. There's rumors of wars. You're going to see all this stuff. The end isn't yet. He goes, nations will rise up against nations. There's going to be famine and pestilence, sickness and disease that will plague the earth. We just saw millions of people die during COVID. He'd speak of false prophets who will come and deceive. But as he begins to speak these things, he's putting their minds to where they should be looking up. In fact, Luke in this same text ends the, the text. It's not here in Matthew's account, but it's in Luke's account. And when these things begin to come to pass, Jesus would say, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. We live in a world in a day and age where the emphasis is placed on the here and now. 
But in this text, Jesus is prodding his disciples. He's prodding you and I 2,000 years later. Where's our focus? Are we ready? For his disciples in that moment, it was on the temple, on the shiny objects, on the, the temple and the size of these stones. But he's calling us for it to be on the, the last hour, his imminent return. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to spend a little bit of time. I want to, as we sing this song, I, I want to have a time where you guys have an opportunity to reflect, to, to set your hearts and minds on the things that are above and to answer the question, are you ready? Are you waiting with anticipation? I'm going to have some people up here available to pray with you. Maybe you just are going through some things in your life and you just want the Lord to speak to you in the middle of these things. Are you ready? Are you waiting with anticipation for his return? Next week, we're going to talk about Daniel's prophecy and we're going to continue here because Jesus brings it up. The abomination of desolation, the end times. We're going to see how they missed his first coming because Daniel prophesies of that. And we're going to be faced with the question that they were faced with. Will we miss it when the rapture takes place? So pray with me. Father, we pray, Lord, as, as we hear these words that did resonate in our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts for your imminent return. Lord, it's coming quickly. You're coming as a thief in the night for your bride. And churches, we have people that are going to be up here. Mike Atkinson, John, if you could come up as well. You guys, don't miss this opportunity. It doesn't have to be everything's wrong in your life, John. Come up. Just if you need prayer, they're available. If you're not, hey, great. I don't want to force something, but I want to make room. Make it available. Don't leave. As they sing this song, get up, come. We want to pray for you. Father, have your way in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's nice. But I oh I need desperation part of, of our need for you would drive us our eyes being set upon the things that are be glorified today as we leave from this place Lord may we have hearts that remember that at any moment you can show up it might be today we pray these things in Jesus Amen. God bless you.